always is an essential element in the creative, is the mysterious. The impenetrable, the profound depth out of which glorious things come, but nobody can see why. Welcome to episode three of The Troublemakers, where we pull back the covers on some of the world's most creative people to help you tap into the power of your own creativity. It doesn't matter where you live, what your job is, or what you want your job to be, creativity can be the difference maker in all of it. The secret sauce, if you will, the superpower. Right. I'm your host, Chris Ford. And I'm also your host, David Carter. Hey, how many podcasts give you two hosts? Uh, I don't think we really know, but two for one sounds like a pretty good deal. I agree. Uh, today's guest is Elliot Kotek, a man with a humbling resume. Hey, wasn't there a commercial about a guy one time who gets more done by like 6 a.m. than most people do all day? That might be Elliot. Yeah, I feel like that's probably Elliot. Um, Elliot has a law degree and Bachelor of Science in Pharmacology and Toxicology from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Which he's Australian. Right, he is Australian. Uh, but he's also studied acting at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute in Manhattan He's a journalist who has interviewed over 1,000 people, including everyone from Elon Musk to Elmo. He's spoken to the United Nations, printed 3D hands for children in war-torn Sudan, helped a graffiti artist with ALS paint with his eyes, is a published poet and photographer, and man, I've got to get my my (laughs) shit together, Uh, and is currently the editor-in-chief of Beyond Cinema Magazine, as well as the CEO of The Nation of Artists which is a storytelling and production company dedicated to creating social good based in uh, Los Angeles. And on top of that, all of that, he's a really nice guy. Yeah, and he's, and he's a good dude. Damn it. Uh, all right, so without any further ado, uh, episode three of The Troublemakers. Here we go. Welcome to the show. Welcome to the show. So uh, today we have with us a long ago friend of mine, Elliot Kotek, uh, who I met at the Cinequest Film Festival in 2008, I think, 2008. I was a first time, only time feature director. I think I'd never been to a film festival, even to watch, I think. And somehow we stumbled on to Elliot and Elliot became this kind of magical friend of the movie. He helped it get into more festivals than I would have ever been into on its own, I think, and opened all these doors. And as I was trying, I remember trying to describe to people this person that was helping the film. And I started to realize it was like impossible to pin down exactly what he did. People would say, who is this guy? And I'm like, well, I think he's an editor for a magazine, but I, I think he also does screenwriting. And then I know he's kind of an actor. He also writes for the magazine. And then I think at one time he was a, had a law degree. And so I think the first question we have for you is, with your background, like, what is on your business card? That is funny. Actually, for that exact reason, it doesn't say anything <laughs> <laughs> on my business card. It just has my name and my contact email, pretty much, and my phone number. But um, but yeah, it's it's kind of for that reason. And you know, it doesn't make it any easier for my for my mom or for my in-laws to uh, to describe what I do. Um, and but typically, I just tell people that I'm a writer. That's how everything started for me. Um, is that I love to write. I need to write, um, and uh, and that led to journalism and writing screenplays and other things. But um, yeah, it's a weird thing because then I'll have had um you know a photography show and people are like i thought you were a writer i'm like <laughs> i am a writer i just happen to also have a photography show right now um so it has morphed over the years and taken me on a completely um unpredictable journey that i've truly appreciated that's cool the next question i we kind of had was looking at this kind of varied background how did you go from a lawyer in Australia to studying acting at the Lee Strasberg Theater Institute in New York City? <laughs> I'll try and give you the short, the short version. <laughs> so I fell in love with New York. Um, I went to, in Australia, it's this weird thing where when you're overseas, people will get you to drop in on friends or close family. 
um, who are not e even proximate to where you are because you're already overseas. So I was overseas in Europe and a friend of mine I'd grown up with was in New York um, and had just started dating an American guy and her mom and my mom and some of our friends were like, well, you have to go to New York so you can check out this guy. You're already overseas. So I flew from, you know, Europe to New York. I was on, um, I was working as a lawyer at the time and I hadn't taken any vacation in three years. And in Australia, you accrue that time and we get four weeks leave a year. So I had 12 weeks paid time off at the time. So I flew to New York met the guy and I had one of those magical experiences in New York where everything just unfolded in a really beautiful way. Like I would lose 20 bucks and find 50 bucks. I would <laughs> ask someone for directions and they're like, don't go there, come with us. And I'd spend the next 48 hours, you know, in this sleepless stupor uh, walking around New York and looking for the cows that were placed all around the city at the time and um, going from place to place and meeting interesting people and creatives and just being really fulfilled and energized. And so when I came back from that trip, I, I basically started telling everyone that in two years <laughs> I was going to move to New York for two years. And so the more I told people, the more it had to become real because otherwise people would just go, wait, what, what are you still doing here? You kept telling us you were going to New York. So I kind of made it real for myself and then, um, and then moved to New York and tried to find a job as a writer, ended up getting a job as a lawyer just so that I could get the visa. Um, and, um, and, and I was sitting in the village and I was writing and I was meeting actors and other writers, just people who would strike up conversations like, what are you working on? What are you writing? And I met all these actors who wanted to read the material. And because my house at the time, the place I was staying, my apartment, was just under Union Square, I was meeting a lot of actors who were at Lee Strasberg because that was on like 15th. Um, just on the east side of Union Square. And they were like, oh, you have to come by this, you know, the Institute. And, uh, and I was just in that mode of being in a new place and being somewhat anonymous. I felt this power to kind of rewrite a little bit of who I was and what people expected of me. And so when I went into Lee Strasberg and they told me that I would need to audition, um, I... I pooped a little bit in my pants, but I also just embraced it and thought, you know what, if I can't do it here where I've got no one judging me um, and no preconceived notions of who I am, then where am I going to experience this? And I ended up going to Strasbourg and getting in and focusing on writing, but having to act as well, just as part of what is compulsory there. And, uh, and it truly changed my life. Like I, I was writing comedy up until that point, but they make you go into all these sense memory exercises where you're like, oh my God, don't tell me I have emotions under here. What are they meant to, what are they doing? You know, and all of a sudden, like I was exploring other material and writing deeper material and looking at the history of Strasbourg and the people that he'd worked with, like, you know, obviously Marilyn Monroe, but like Al Pacino and Ellen Burstyn and just some wonderfully rich history, um, Sally Field. And, um, and I started like looking to those people and I started interviewing some of those people for magazines. And it was just a whole kind of rabbit hole of amazingness that just took me on a journey that I, that like, you know, I was clean cut, short hair, cufflinks and ties and became very rapidly scruffy, bearded, various forms of facial hair, um, <laughs> you know, and, and just exploring something that I never thought was my reality before. So when you, when you went to New York, you, it sounds like you had an active um, ambition to maybe move out of being a lawyer. Yeah, I was definitely exploring being a writer. I, I wanted to be a writer in the village, like a, to, in, to embrace that stereotype and just to dive into some of the screenplays that had already been writing on the side and for fun in Australia and also to just kind of be able to go to the theatre all the time and, and lap up like everything at its highest iteration, like w the people that were most ambitious in the world in whatever field, whether it was art or architecture or finance or law or, you know, they all congregate in New York, which is the amazing thing. It's this real 
it's not a monoculture in terms of people's ambitions. And uh, so I kind of just fed off that. And I was always someone who didn't sleep very much. And so I tried to get some writing jobs, but it's hard to get sponsored as an Australian uh, for a visa, which is why uh, which is why I ended up taking a job at a law firm because that was the easiest thing to do. But um, people would joke that I was um, working on the Penske file, which was a Seinfeld reference at the time. <laughs> <laughs> that I was at work, but I was really like printing off screenplays and studying, you know, different um, different plays. And um, I would have meetings in the conference rooms, but they would just be rehearsals for my scene study, you know. So, and I would, and I would. It was such a big firm. I was on like the forty fourth floor of my building or something like that looking out over the Chrysler building. And then I would disappear during the day and go to class and then I would come back. And so when people bothered checking up at me, I was there at the beginning of the day and I was there at the end of the day. (laughs) I wasn't always there in the middle of the day. Um, It was this really ridiculous situation, but I'd been working so hard in Australia as as a lawyer, as an attorney until that point that I kind of felt like I was owed a little bit of life back. (laughs) Well, backing up a little bit. So, I mean, it sounds like, by the time you got to New York, New York, you had a pretty strong um, creative drive. So before back in Australia, you became a lawyer. What prompted you to become a lawyer as opposed to exploring the, the arts, if you want to call it that, yeah, at I an think, earlier stage? Yeah, I think in Australia at that time, it was only the very beginnings of Australians and non-Americans being successful in the U.S., in the creative world. Before that, it was always Americans playing all the roles and doing all that stuff. And so there'd been a couple of successes. But in the main, like that whole crew of Heath Ledger and Hugh Jackman and everyone else that followed, and now it's like, you know, there's an Aussie on every show. But at the time, it wasn't the case. And in Australia, the creative arts, given how small our population is, is not a really lucrative profession. So if you've got the opportunity at school, you know, to follow law or medicine, then you generally get pushed in those directions and those fields. And um, my family was a, you know, essentially an immigrant family. Um, And so having going down the traditional path towards law or medicine, if you had the if you had the were seen to have the chops for it, then that's kind of what you went for. Um, and you could do the arts on the side, but it wasn't something where you could kind of really guarantee yourself a career. And so uh, that's why I think, like, you know, people knew me a certain way in Australia at that time. Um, but as I moved over to the US and was given that license to explore that other side, you know, first it was a toe and then a foot and then it was all in. It's a... Uh... It's pretty unique to to both, I think, have the opportunity and then the wherewithal to rewrite your life. Well, that's that's sort of at the heart of what we're trying to get at with this podcast. The hope of the podcast is to help inspire and empower people to tap into their own kind of creativity, whether or not they actually think they're creative. And I just, I don't know, I just thought it was worth mentioning. Yeah, that. but I, I mean, on that note, no matter what I was pursuing. So I had a, I had a science, you know, I, I have a science degree as well from in Australia. Um, so I went to Monash University and it works a little differently in Australia. So I did science and law at the same time. And you graduate from one before the other. But, you, but I was doing a degree that I majored in pharmacology and toxicology. And that's because I still wasn't sure if I was going to be do medicine or law because th- those were both kind of the options that were on the table um, growing up, but, um, I was always writing, you know, so no matter what it was, like on a Saturday morning, I'd go down to somewhere and grab a coffee and sit with a book or late at night, I couldn't sleep. I would wake up with a notepad and start writing something, whether it was a bit of prose or a little short story. And typically they would never, I never sought any sort of public recognition for it. I never submitted them anywhere. I never shared them with anybody. But really, I guess, you know, no matter what, I felt this, you know, really basic need to write and never really felt like I had a complete week unless I'd managed to write something. And so, you know, a lot of people pursue a creative path and they want to be something. And I get that. It's a very romantic notion. 
But at the core, I think the people that make it work and go through these transformative experiences where they are able to shift careers is because they've always needed to do something. They're just waiting for that moment for it to go from a private expression to a public one. Do you remember when you first felt this compulsion to write? I don't. I mean, it wasn't till afterward. Everything looks great, you know, 2020 hindsight is that you go back and someone goes, oh, I found that piece you wrote for the grade four annual you know, yearbook. <laughs> and, and you're like, oh, I don't even remember writing that or that it was in there. Um, and so I don't know what that was. But I must say, like, you know, you go back and you look at you, you do go and analyze these things sometimes. And you're like, my grandfather on my mum's side was always very um, a big fan of the arts and would listen to records and would go to the theatre and take me to the movies and do things like that and would write, like, critique um, and send it into the newspaper and things like that. And my mum was a school teacher and would always kind of help elevate my projects. But she was an elementary school teacher, right, so it was more about the fun of it. Um, and with her and my dad, we would always go to local theatre um, we would always go to, you know, local plays and things in the park and storytelling sessions at the library. And it was just this kind of rich tapestry of storytelling um, that I think also is particular to to immigrant populations. Like I remember being with my granddad. Um, I grew up near the beach in Melbourne, in, like in St Kilda, and we would go and, and be on the beach and he would be chatting to his mates like these old guys and they would be just that's what they did they would just gather and talk and it was kind of your own little rite of passage um through this kind of storytelling landscape and I don't know that I I never was without that I can't picture a time when there wasn't someone telling a story about something I found your um I think there's an interesting transition to your uh your four P's because obviously you have a, a passion for writing and storytelling and I'd love to hear you explain, um, your four P's. Yeah. Um, I, I really truly believe that, um, we're in a pretty amazing time right now for those of us living, having the ability to live in a developed landscape that we are being asked what our passion points are. And a lot of people say, well, I don't know what mine is. Um, so for them, I just say, well, every now and then you look around you and someone else inspires you and you might want to join their team and help them fulfill their passion. And you might get the kind of the, the contact high from that. But, um, but for me, it's like when you have a passion for something, and for me, it was when I got to New York, I would, I, you know, I wanted to do storytelling. So I wanted to also talk to storytellers and how they did things and see how, hear what their experiences were. And so when I started having a passion for that, I started contacting publicists and magazines and matching the talent with the magazine so that I could get a chance to interview them. And the more I talked to people who were artists and actors and even chefs and even hotel owners and whatever, they were so passionate about what they did that when you're interviewing them, you just get excited. And so passion breeds passion. And I found that because I was excited and was doing my homework and approaching these interviews with like a diligence because I really wanted to get to the heart of certain things that people really appreciated it. And those those stories and those articles were getting well read and getting good feedback. And then I realized that when I asked people something that was not entertainment related necessarily, but more about the cause that they were interested in or defining moments or mentors or things like that, that they'd had, um, that those pieces were getting more traction and they were feeling like better conversations where you would come out of it, where the person was saying, oh, I don't feel like that was an interview at all. I hope you got what you needed. And I was just giddy with the amount of richness that those conversations had in them. And so what I invariably found was that my passion then became more focused. And so it had a purpose, which was getting to these kind of greater conversations, a greater good social impact, etc., And that those um, pieces were also coming out at a time when I feel like the entire landscape was shifting towards social media, which was a no bullshit platform. So basically whenever someone posts something now, someone calls bullshit on it or, or, or 
enables it to represent a truth, right? So we have that immediate feedback loop now. So as I was putting these pieces out, um, that those buzzwords that are now kind of cliche, but authenticity, organic, um, sincerity, like those were the words being used to describe the conversations we were having, that they were just authentic, real conversations. And I think that anything that's sincere um, and rings true has the ability to reach more people in more places um, than any other form of content. And so as I progressed down that path and had a couple of screenplays optioned but not made, then got into journalism even deeper when I was offered a role running a magazine um, and then used that position on the film festival circuit to meet people like yourself um, and people around the world who wanted to make stuff, we just started making little documentaries together and, and all of a sudden we had this group of people that were doers and so... The passion led to a purpose and that purpose led to me finding my people. And I, I kind of feel that that's true of everybody. It's like when people know what you're passionate about and that you have a purpose around something, either you declare it and those people are attracted to you or other people look out for you knowing what you stand for and keep recommending people to you. And so that purpose leads to people. So it leads to you having a community around you. And once you have that community around you and you're all focused on this unified purpose, then anything is possible. So the four Ps are passion, purpose, people, and possibility. I, yeah, I think that's a, a, a great formula. And, you know, we're, I think we're all roughly around the same age, midlife more or less, and you kind of take stock of... Maybe uh, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> you kind of take stock of things a little bit and, and you realize um, you know, with a little self-examination how important that passion and purpose are, um, yeah. uh, certainly for me. Totally. Uh, 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 yeah, I'd love to, you know, to hear about that first moment where you kind of lived into it or leaned into it. But for me, it's, it's you know, I got the opportunity to make a couple of documentaries that were that felt like they were resonating and people were saying yes more please and then that led to me being partnered with other people who enabled the thoughts that I was having to translate into other pieces of content that got out there and also got that sort that sort of vindication around them where either they you know got little little statues or they um, got a certain amount of traction and certain amount of viewership um, that and that meant that you again got to do it again, and that other people said yes more please, and then you can continue to refine that. And my my kind of motto for a while was, this is so great. My all I want to do is more, bigger, and with good people. And by having that kind of at the forefront of my brain, let's do it more, let's do it bigger, and keep looking for those good people. You kind of create that environment for yourself. I mean. This question kind of builds on that thought because, I mean, I I feel like community is so important, but how do you maintain your people, your your circle or whatever you want to call it? Especially in this day and age when we're all, everybody lives everywhere. and <laughs> Yeah, I, and that's the weird thing is like being from Australia, having lived in New York, now living in L.A., um, I used to be better at it. I, I was, I've always been a pretty social person person um but in a way that is um small scale so i don't go to a party that i don't know anyone at like i feel uncomfortable in that setting and probably don't stay very long or i find one person and glob onto them and talk to them <laughs> for like the entire couple of hours and then sneak out without saying goodbye kind of thing but I loved um, and still love when I get the chance of bringing a group of people together around a table and having dinner, whether I'm cooking for them or someone else is, or everyone brings potluck or whatever. But I love having small groups of people, whether it's eight or 12, get together and have real conversations. And so sometimes I think that even if I don't have time because I'm working or, you know, I've got kids now um, and you prioritize them, of course, as well, that 
sometimes I just get that feeling by introducing people to each other. It's almost like if I can't be the conduit or make stuff happen with other people as often as I'd like, if I can kind of end the night by introducing people over email to each other where they can go off and potentially make something together that's really great, um, then to me that's a, just a beautiful feeling for me to have. And... Um, and I know that that's part of that process where people then think of you as that piece of the puzzle that connects them to other people. And so you just never lose that connection. It's a strong connection. Is that the, the producer in you putting people together? I don't know. I think that's a, I think it's a human element that it's, it's like to get satisfaction from putting other people together with each other is a weird thing. It's a, it's kind of selfish and selfless at the same time. <laughs> um, and it wasn't until later, I didn't know that there were any statistics around that, but I had the honor of getting a fellowship at um, Kellogg like a year ago. And I went in there for this leadership program. Again, like something that was unexpected and better than I thought it would ever be. Um, I loved every minute of it. But what they said was that people who connect you to others, like if you sat down and go, who am I? 20 best people or who are my 20 closest friends and who introduced me to those people how do I know them you continuously kind of come back to like a handful of people through whom you tend to have most of your connections and those people are also the people you think of as being the most creative even if they're not necessarily really creative people but for some reason you just credit them with creativity um, and I found that pretty fascinating because obviously I view myself as being pretty creative. Um, but I also just love handing off connections to others. Um, and in a very childish teenage romance sort of way, like I don't want them becoming better friends with each other than they were with me. <laughs> <laughs> so I make sure they report back on how that relationship is going. That's oh, funny. Um, do you feel like you have um, like one accomplishment that kind of brings your four P's to life that you would hang on the wall above all other things that you've done? I would say um, you have many, but yeah, what, what do you I, think is one that you're, that you're not most I, proud of, but very proud of? And um, Yeah, that's a, really, that's a really cool question just because I'm happy. I'm, I'm always happy when that changes. And lately I've been really celebrating that that has shifted and it becomes something new. And so a few years ago, um, when I did the Project Daniel um, project, which is... Uh, yeah, would you, would you explain yeah, that a little so, bit? So around just before Project Daniel happened, um, someone partnered me with a guy who was a commercial producer. I was coming from the documentary and journalism world. And we pitched a bunch of ideas to Intel and uh, this project ended up getting funded. There's a long story to that too. But, um, but essentially what we did is we sent four people to Sudan, um, to South Sudan and then Sudan with 3D printers, and this is at the end of 2013, uh, to print a 3D printable prosthetic limb for a boy who'd lost both his arms in a bomb blast. And we had gotten people together at our offices in Venice um, and they had kind of come up with the template. It was really a tweaked file um, from this guy. His name's Richard Van Ars. He's a South African guy who developed the first ever 3D printed uh, prosthetic hand. And so he created an arm from that file and it was sent along with 3D printers to South Sudan where Daniel essentially got an arm back um, and used it to feed himself for the first time in two years. And it was at that time that 3D printing was a really big buzzword, but no one was really using it for anything other than creating cool iPhone accessories. <laughs> and, and so showing that there was a potential human application or humanitarian application for it um, was really cool. But also the project was one where a lot of people were brought together um, a neuroscientist, a, um, another guy who'd worked on prosthetics in Iraq, uh, a, an engineer from New York, a 3D printer company owner from 
um, Sacramento, and all these people kind of came down to be in this one space at the one time to think about a solution for this kid. And then the fact that this kid was actually found by this doctor in Sudan, American doctor in Sudan, and that he actually got a chance to have an arm printed for him and use it, uh, that really showed like the power of people coming together around a purpose. Um, that couldn't be denied. And the possibility was undeniable too because the project um, not only had a billion media impressions and won a ton of accolades, but what it did was like we would get emails from a kid in Brazil waving at us with his new hand or I would get an email from a little girl and her team in Vietnam and that little girl was a quadruple amputee who was and I'd see a photo of her watching this video of watching Project Daniel and they would write saying because she can see this video she now knows that her future is not defined by her current limitations that there are people working on solutions for people like her. And I think one of the, yeah. sorry to interrupt. I think one of the um, one of the really fascinating things to me about Project Daniel was it wasn't correct me if I'm wrong, but it wasn't like hey, let's just sit down and make this kid a prosthetic arm. It was I mean, he was basically kind of in a state of mind where he felt like he had no reason to live because he was going to be a burden on his family and his his community because they would have to take care of him and so it was you by making this prosthetic arm for him completely changed his state of mind and his his feelings of of self-worth yeah there was there, you know certainly after the bomb blast in those first moments afterwards he did like in that original time magazine article that we'd read that um that inspired the whole story um he definitely expressed that, that, yeah, he had lost, he, he knew he was going to be a burden on his family now. And obviously being in that climate where every day is such a thin line um, between, in, between survival and, and, and death, um, not having your own hands and your own arms means that you do have to rely on everybody else. Daniel had a little friend, Sharky, who would do everything for him. Like he had two sets of clothes. So Sharky would be washing one, getting that one ready while they were wearing the other. He would feed him. He would help bathe him or, you know, or after the bathroom, he would help him out. You know, so there were, and you'd assume that those kids were brothers, but they weren't. They were just from the same place. And so by giving Daniel something that would enable him to feed himself, um, you freed up this other kid to be a kid again too. And so it was that sort of implication that I thought was also really interesting and worth exploring is like who benefits from one person being able to take care of themselves. And the story is always told of that person being more independent, but it very rarely told about the flow on effect of how quite how right. many other people are affected. And, um, and even if like this, this, that limb at that time was so rudimentary, there are so much better products on the market now, obviously. And that file was also made available to anybody to use. It wasn't locked up. And I think that was the benefit of doing it in this way is that by making it a piece of content that was sold as a piece of content and supported as a piece of content, by Intel and this other company, Presipart, an engineering company in New York, you didn't need to go out and protect the technology or the file or sell that piece of technology or that file. So you weren't reliant on that as an industry. So you didn't need to kind of bury it away somewhere. You could openly share it. I think that story is, is another um, great example of what Chris and I talk a lot about in terms of creativity, often it's associated with the arts and certainly the three of us are associated in the arts in different ways. Um, you know, writing, painting, music, whatever, but creativity is, is really about problem solving, which project Daniel is a perfect example of. Yeah. And it's Reaper. also like, like my company's called nation of artists. And what I, the reason behind that is that there are so many people who are creative but not given credit for being creative. And I think Project Daniel, what it showed was that engineers are often like the most creative people in terms of problem solving 
um, in the room. That That's essentially their job is also to problem solve. And when they're given a challenge, they're voracious in their approach to solving that, that problem. And so watching them light up by being given challenges like Project Daniel um, is really fun. And so Nation of Artists tries to recognize that creativity that lives, it can come from anyone in the room. Um, and so that's kind of something that we try and, and foster is that, okay, who's communicating on this? Whose idea is it? Who hasn't commented on it yet? Have they got anything that we want to embed um, who's the unlikely hero in this room who comes at it from a different way. And this is where we get into like true conversations about diversity. Diversity gets often like confused with ethnicities and ranges of ethnicities, but really it's a diversity of thought and background and experiences. And often that represents itself by ethnicities and ethnographies and geographies and where we come from. Um, but really what it is, is like, what are those people's experiences coming into the room that day? Um, where have they come from, what experiences have they had, and how does that change the way they approach problem solving? And so the more diverse backgrounds you have in the room, uh, I think truly it's the only way to get innovation of thought is to have people with different backgrounds coming together in the same place at the same time to think about the same thing. You'd, you'd said that you were excited because, um, because that's an amazing story, but you s- seem to be excited about something changing a new project about that yeah so uh at so we're we're in february now um i don't want to date the podcast too much but we uh we in january we launched a project called um my special aflac duck and Oh man. So Carol Cohn, who's considered the mother of cause marketing and this fireball of energy, she brought this team of, um, four good toy makers called, called Sproutel from Providence. She brought them into Aflac's office, um, about a year and a bit ago, um, to talk to Aflac about using their duck for something different. And Aflac, have a history, um, and I don't mean this to be a promotional spot for Aflac, but this is what sold me on the project. They have a 10-year history with um, donating money for research at the Aflac Cancer Centre in Atlanta, at the Children's Healthcare of Atlanta. And so they've donated about $120 million over the last 10 years, made up mostly of donations by the insurance salespeople themselves from their commission checks. And so it's kind of embedded in the system and they hadn't really ever sought any publicity for it. And research, as you know, takes a long time. And in children's cancers, there's only been something like three drugs approved in the last 20 to 40 years. And a very minimal amount of the National Institute of Health budget goes to pediatric cancer. And what this team in in Providence did was they took the Aflac duck and they created a robotic, a social robotic quote unquote toy. It's so much more than a toy. It's a robot that has, that gives kids the ability to express their emotions without having to talk about them there. They've got these little emoji cards that they can, these little discs that they can hold up to the duck's chest and it has an RFID reader in the chest. And so the duck then quacks with the emotion that you're holding up to its chest. You can put a little chemo port on the duck's chest and have some medical play with it. So if you're a kid who's in a medical setting and you're feeling like you've lost some control because you don't know what's happening, you can actually reenact what's happening to you with your duck and your duck also has this very soothing heartbeat at the same time and breathes in a certain fashion that calms the child Um, it has soundscapes that you can program individually for each kid Uh, each kid can create their own place where the duck can kind of jet off to and create some sounds Um, it has it, the duck nuzzles and does all these other beautiful things. And so they came to us um, and we created the storytelling around that project, which meant that for about five months before the launch, we were privy to the development of this, of this duck that even the employees of Aflac didn't know anything about. And going with Aaron and Hannah and Joel and their team at Sproutel to the 
cancer center in Atlanta and working with these prototypes of the duck and getting feedback from the kids and their parents um, as these kids went through chemo and then seeing the iterations of the duck come back from the, from the factory with all these different upgrades and its interactivity with an app and all this other stuff was just so beautiful. And it got launched at CES, which is not the usual place for an insurance company to be, to showcase the technology of this duck. And people just responded to it in such a, an amazing way. We had reporters from like TechCrunch and Mashable, etc., just crying. And they're like, this is the first time I've cried at CES. <laughs> and, um, and the response was incredible to the point where the team was on more than 80 television stations within the first two days, Time Magazine and Reuters and AP and everyone were naming it one of the 10 best things at CES. Um, the love that people had for this little toy that is, you know, was just infectious and it reached, so Project Daniel, as a, as a milestone, reached a billion media impressions over the course of about 12 months, which is, was huge and definitely worth boasting about in terms of trying to get more work. But this reached over 2 billion media impressions within the first three or four days. Wow. And the team behind it is so well-intentioned that you just feel good for everybody. And... Whereas Project Daniel was a beautiful symbol that even with barely anything, you can make something that has meaning for someone. This has the potential and Aflac's intention for it is to, at zero cost to the kids and their families, distribute one of these robotic ducks to every one of the 16,000 kids diagnosed with cancer next year in the US. And then to continue that year after year and develop upgrades for the duck and let it do different things as time progresses so that it really can become part of this kid's way of a companion for a child going through these kind of tough conditions in a very positive, uplifting way, not in a, oh, poor kid has cancer kind of way and not in a battle, we have to battle cancer, but no, we have to just change the narrative for these kids and enable them to have a companion, enable them to be able to express themselves it's just such a nice project that has the potential to change a lot more kids' lives in the day-to-day. Um, and then to also have this incredible kind of media recognition for it. It won like three awards in three days at CES as well. Um, and so to have that both where it's winning on the side of social impact and winning as a great example of storytelling and and well-intentioned manufacturing, etc., all coming out of this um, pop culture icon, um, to me is like a really significant moment. Dang, that's some serious use of creativity. Yeah, what um, I really, what I really loved about it too is like, imagine you're sitting on the Geico Gecko or the Aflac Duck, like something that is so iconic and represents something funny, right, and fun. Like when you watch these commercials, they're always being used in a comedic way, right? Or a comedic way. And to then allow or to give this icon a dual role, a second role that's so much more purposeful and heavy um, and to not be worried about how it you know, lives in the marketplace with those two responsibilities not just the one that's driving, you know, returns to your shareholders, but also the one that's driving some goodness. Like, to me, that's a that's pretty ballsy. Super ballsy. I mean, I think we've all worked for brands that have been far less ballsy. Brands have so much opportunity to do things like this. It's um, it's amazing and awesome when they finally do. But I'm, I'm sure those I'm sure there were many discussions at Aflac about that. <laughs> Yeah, that very idea. And, and, and just while we, like I was conscious of using the word ballsy there, because like I've seen plenty of reports where it's saying, you know, the strength of a woman's private parts to deliver a kid and to stretch beyond recognition, etc., is like much stronger. And yet we call 
pussy's weak or use that term as a sign of weakness. <laughs> and whereas with balls, if we get even they're very fragile, tweaked, tweaked by them, <laughs> yeah. we cringe in pain, like <laughs> and cower in a corner. And yet we use that as a definition of strength. I, if I had the confidence to use uh, if we strength of a of a pussy in a better way <laughs> i probably would have tried to use that too. we have now earned the explicit rating on our podcast thank <laughs> that's god amazing <laughs> so just know that you know in no way am i discounting the power of of other private parts we've blown up the balls metaphor <laughs> it's, it's no longer valid i guess it's this is maybe a tough segue but i think one of the things we always are curious about specifically me is like we love to hear about people's routines because so much of being creative is sort of just doing the work i guess a question for you is like what i mean if you apparently don't sleep is the rumor but what happens after you wake up from your hour nap at night uh in the morning like what what is what is what is your day? Yeah, well, it's changed now for sure than those days in New York where I literally would sleep two hours a night and I'm using literal in the word, in the true definition of that word. Um, so <laughs> Kids will do that to you. Kids will do that to you. And now because they wake up early, your schedule gets shifted to an earlier time slot. Um, but yeah, I, I wake up when generally when when the kids wake up so we're talking about you know 6 six thirty is a decent morning and uh and then spend that time with them and my son is five so he's in what's what's known as tk which is just before kindergarten um so i take him to uh so i get him ready help get him ready my daughter it just turned nine is turning nine months this week um so i take sam my eldest i take him to school drop him at school before coming into work. Um, but I, as soon as I drop him, I get in the car, I do my first round of emails from the car outside his school, um, and then I drive into work um, and make a coffee, get a whole bunch of emailing done, then try and get some, like, some of the bigger projects um, advanced in whatever way that means, like whether it's writing a script or reviewing cuts or... Um, and I have been known to not eat lunch, which is problematic. So now I've got, um, on my team, it's just, we have a check-in around 1130 to make sure everyone knows, Hey, what are we doing for lunch today? Just so everyone, <laughs> everyone makes sure that everyone eats, which is a good thing. And then I typically wrap up at the office personally, um, between six and six thirty, so that I can make it home to do bath and bedtime, um, and then the kids are both generally in bed by 7.30, quarter to 8. Then I sit down and have dinner, um, have a quick chat, <laughs> chat and check in with my wife. Um, she tends to start her bedtime around 9.30. And then so that's when I actually go back to work with, um, with some sort of distractor happening in the background to help keep me awake as well. So I tend to work again from like 9.30 on till. 1.30, I would say, at night as well. But it's weird. It's like I, I, I love it. I love the work we're creating so much that it doesn't feel burdensome except when we're on multiple deadlines and things get a little chaotic. But um, but that's the typical routine. But I do travel a lot. Last year I travelled a lot because I was directing and producing in India, Colombia, the Philippines, Turkey, Columbus and Atlanta, Georgia, Providence, Rhode Island, Boston. I was doing something for Lego in Boston. Um, and it's, it was a real whirlwind. Um, I had, you know, significant family stuff happen um, and uh, back in Australia. So went back there a couple of times, uh, took my and then um, I love traveling with my son. Um, so he came with me twice to Australia, just the two of us. And then I also managed to take him to visit a friend of mine in Montana. Uh, just so we got him up on a horse and things like that. <laughs> I love that you had two kids and you now need five hours of sleep. <laughs> yeah. Six is like a <laughs> so, amazing, like perfect that's a, night. But it's impressive. Yeah. But five is good and four is okay too. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. If only. Yeah. Uh, um, 
One, one question we like to ask a lot is like, what's the one piece of advice you most often give or would give to a creative person? Um, I think it's changed. It's, it changes all the time for me. Um, I get really excited about different things that pop into my head. One is idol worshiping, where the idol is spelled I-D-L-E. And I just think that there's a lot of resources that everyone has that aren't fully utilized. And that can be from a human capacity. If you look around at work, you know, even if you've got someone who's not in a certain discipline that's associated with with creativity, that you give them the opportunity to do something or work towards something that has meaning for them. Um, but so it's using people to their fullest and not letting them just let parts of themselves that they are passionate about lay idle. Um, similarly, when we talk to clients, it's like, well, what do you ha-? like? Sometimes they say, well, we can't afford to do that. I was like, well, what do you have that you're not using? Um, because if it's trucks that aren't on the road all the time, maybe those can be something that you can use to deliver social impact in a way that's not hugely cost prohibitive for you um, and can have a lot of meaning. So breaking down what is laying idle within each of us, within within the environments, environments that each of us live in, um, to me was a really strong thing for people to take stock in. Like, look at what what that is around you and use it to further whatever it is you want to do. Um, To a similar kind of notion, it's there's no reason not to be creating. That at whatever stage you're at, even if you need tons of other people to fulfill your vision, there are so many people who want to help and there are so many people who are in exactly the same position. And now with social media and our level of connectivity, there's no reason that you can't find those people to help you um, because you'll be fulfilling everybody's desires simultaneously. And so for me, it's like whether you're going on a notice board and posting something that you want to accomplish or going on Facebook or going on Twitter or going down to your local you know, church or synagogue or, or mosque or whatever to express, hey, this is what I am and this is what I'm about and this is what I want to do and have people come to you, whether it's your sporting club, etc. There are so many networks of people now that if you can just communicate what you want to achieve, people will come to you. It kind of goes back to those four Ps, but it's like there's no reason and no excuses for not starting. Um, and so people who tell me it's just too hard or I can't wait till that moment when I have X or Y to start this project, even if it's money, it's very rarely a truth because especially in creative fields, there are so many people who, who are not yet at the stage they want to be at, who want the opportunity to step up, um, that especially in big cities, but also in little ones where you can get online with other people, you can make stuff happen. So just don't accept that, that mentality, you know, of not being able to get started. That's how, that's how little movies get made. That was, totally. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I was like village uh, barbershop. Yeah. Like the village barbershop. Yeah. I was like, who's going to compose Movie it? Plug. I don't know. I'll post, I'll post it online. And then you have like a hundred composers that want to do it for free. It's amazing. Isn't like, that incredible? And that's, a, that's what the beauty as yeah. well of running a Kickstarter is. So if you don't have money and even if you're like, well, I can never raise the amount of money that I need. It doesn't matter. Because it's not about necessarily raising the money. That's one component. But even if you put up there like $8,000 or something super achievable, you know, you can, what you gain also is like you start building A, an audience and a people who feel like they're part of your process in a proprietary sense, like they feel like they're part of your project. But you also start opening up to people who are like, look, I don't have a thousand dollars to give you or $300 to give you, but I would love to help out and hold the reflector. I'd love to hold the boom. <laughs> like, let me know how I can help. And you really do just start building this community of people who are going to help you fulfill that vision. Um, and I think that's pretty magical. What are some of the traits that people could develop to help strengthen creativity within themselves? Oh, that's a great question. Um, if they're looking to strengthen their creativity, I, 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 you can never underestimate research, right? It's like 
find whatever it is, whether it's podcasts, articles, websites that make you excited, right? That either by their originality of thought or by sharing with you the latest in some field, whether it's technological or advertising related or art, um, where you're being bombarded by images or information that excite you. Because that's how you find that's how you find your passion and your passion points, but it's also how you become knowledgeable about how you're going to give effect to it, and it helps you get your voice and find the words that you're going to use to express what you want to create is by reference to those things that you've seen, heard, experienced, and so the more even if you're somewhere where you don't feel like you have access to the latest shows you can consume them to whatever ability you have to be connected. Um, you know, for me, there was a time when I was obsessed with a site called PSFK because it was like showing me a whole bunch of technology, a lot of which was related to healthcare that I thought was exciting. I would even just go and read different categories on Kickstarter or on Indiegogo to mm -hmm. see what category, what people were trying to get done online that they thought was new and novel. Um, I was watching short films on Vimeo that were freely accessible um, where motion graphics were big to see how people handled transitions and sequences. And so I think that it's just being awake. Um, I'm not going to use the term woke. I don't have license <laughs> to do that. <laughs> I love being awake, though. That's a great description of it. <laughs> the, yeah, be, being awake to all that sort of stuff is um, because the more you look for it, you go down these rabbit holes that we all go through on social every now and then that are just so fulfilling. And it's the reason why we stay up at night. And it's the reason why we procrastinate from something, but don't view it as procrastination unless it's really getting damaging, um, <laughs> you know, but view it as like, Oh my goodness, this is bringing me to a whole nother level. I want to do something like this. I want to add a flavor profile from this. I want to add a taste of this to something that I'm doing. Uh, or I'm going to use the, the language that this is giving me to communicate to other people that I don't currently communicate to. That's a great, uh, I don't know, a great term being awake. I, I concur, man. Like, yeah, it, I'm always, it, it, you know, when you're, when you're a dad and you have a job and you get those rare moments where you're not kind of immersed in the day to day and you feel, even if, it's only temporarily awake. It's, it's something to keep hunting for. Yeah. And don't you love those moments? Like as a dad, it's like, you know, when I went to um, Strasbourg, the license to approach things as a child would, right? So even if you don't have kids yet to kind of think about the fact that when they pick up a pen or a keychain or anything, it gets shaken to generate a sound. <laughs> it gets licked to see if it has a taste or a coolness or a heat it gets looked at and stared at it gets rubbed to get that sense of touch that you approach everything with those with all the senses right and when you get those moments when you can see your kids processing on all senses and that they then remind you to process something in a new way i mean it's th that sort of stuff is remarkable beginner's mind Oh, it's incredible. Beginner's mind. I mean, we're uh, we're getting to the end of our little hour here. Carter, should we ask a, a final a final question? Ask away, Mr. Ford. I don't know. We have a, a handful of final questions. I'm trying to choose one. I'm curious. Like, I, We've never asked this one before, but I'm curious because of the number of people that you've interviewed and um, if you could trade places with one other creative person in any field, who would it be? Ooh. You haven't asked this to anyone yet? No. <laughs> You're um, the first. We just, we just cooked this one up. <laughs> they have to be in a different creative field than yours? It, it doesn't have to be. Yeah. It's just who would you trade places with creatively? Yeah. I, th I think anyone who – there's like so, certain people that seem to be given a chance to try everything. And I think that you kind of summed it up when when – when we were first talking and like the right, right at the beginning of this piece. So I guess it's nicely circular. It's like, if I want to explore something photographically and someone's willing to indulge that 
to the point where I can still put food on the table, like that's amazing. If I want to explore something in film, great. If I want to explore something through an experiential design or an event, awesome. So the people that are able to kind of flip between all these different things, um, I find, you know, fairly remarkable. Um, from a pure mastery perspective, I've always just been in love with the work of Daniel Day-Lewis. I just, like, I think that he has, like, this weird ability to just devote himself to what he wants to um, in a way that always reads sincere. Elon Musk is a hard person not to respect just because... (laughs) And not not just because he's trying to tackle such big questions, but also because he's already succeeded and could just be sitting on an island somewhere and yet chooses not just once, but time and time again to get back in the saddle and risk it and try for something bigger. And that, I think, is just a remarkable character trait that you could make money off whatever that zip to it wallet system or whatever that was like <laughs> the first thing that he did with his brother and he could have gone off and had a very nice holiday after that and then PayPal <laughs> after that and then Tesla after that and then SpaceX after that. There's no, there's no point at which he said, ah, I think that's enough, you know, like, and it doesn't, it's not like he could spend the money he has or, you know, but the fact that he's trying to achieve something so big. Um, Mark Zuckerberg, like just like the, the interesting thing for me about him is that he can be the most philanthropic person with the biggest impact in history because he earned his billions before he was even 30. So he has... Whereas most people get all their money and make all their fame and whatever over time. And when they're in their 60s and 70s, they get a chance to give it back. He's got 70, you know, 60 to 70 plus years ahead of him to make impact happen every year, whether that's giving 100 million to the New Jersey school system or investing in some, you know, medical um you know, uh, environment for people to tap into for research purposes, but to like those sorts of, those sorts of people who have the ability to do things at the top level without having to worry about a fail safe. um, That to me, I guess is something like, I, I think I always still have this fail safe. Like I haven't reached a point where I cannot like that. It's not a risk. Everything for me, every project I take still feels like, is this the right use of my time? Is this the right company to be working with? Are they showing the right sort of intention behind this project? Or are they using my kind of social impact lens for their own advantage? Like, is what's the balance of that equation? Um, I haven't reached a point where it doesn't yet feel that it's lacking in risk. And I would love to reach a point where I'm like, these are the parameters. This is the impact that I have to achieve with each project um, and setting things up for success in that way. Um, those sorts of people who have that ability, I, I guess, are the people I would swap with. Solid list. Yeah, I kind of feel like it might be a little <laughs> generic, though. No, but there there is a nice synchronicity today when uh, Elon Musk and SpaceX just launched, launched a Tesla with a... <laughs> A crash test dummy in the driver's seat into space. <laughs> yeah. To, yeah. Which is, to David Bowie. Yeah. Right. I mean, think about, think about your complete confidence or your complete lack of needing to um, listen to everybody else's voices that went into that decision. It's like, no, this is what I want to do. Right. It's like, and now you can literally watch that car floating through space. It's pretty on its way to Mars. Yeah. Just <laughs> thinking about that greatest horizon we've ever known and thinking that that's something that's in your ability to act upon, reach, you know, thinking so outside the planet Um that there are just no limitations for you in the way you need to approach things. That's amazing. Seems like a pretty good note to end on, maybe. Fantastic.
We have to work on our endings. We, uh, we, we, we really have no idea what you do at the end of a podcast yet. That's great.